0: listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 54: Sex and Gender part 1. In this uh, double episode, we are going to talk about the differences between males and females, mostly looking at it from a perspective of different differences in behaviors and social outcomes. First, so we'll first discuss some of those differences just from an observational standpoint and then we'll try and present some of the sociological, psychological, and biological evidence, attempting to explain why these differences exist. And In particular, the focus will be on trying to distinguish between biological versus uh, social influences of of differing outcomes and behaviours, personalities, etc., between males and females. So first, before we start looking at some differences, it's important to define the difference between the terms sex and gender although the podcast is about both in a sense. uh, The focus is much more on gender, and I'll explain uh, what I mean by that. So in sort of the way that people commonly speak, sex and gender are often used interchangeably, but particularly in social science, uh, sociology in particular, sex and gender are quite uh, generally distinguished from one another. So sex is used to refer to biological differences, so specifically reproductive organs, secondary sexual characteristics, uh, X and Y chromosomes, that sort of thing. So it's just the purely biological uh, and reproductive aspect of whether one is male or female, and this applies to humans and animals as well. that's sex. Gender refers to The socially and culturally constructed roles, behaviours and activities and attributes that a given society considers to be masculine or feminine or appropriate for boys or girls or men or women. So this is this also relates to people's gender identity, whether they perceive themselves as being male or female but it it's distinguished from the biologic the, the purely biological aspect so for example, there are some people who though biologically male or female, consider themselves to have the opposite gender identity, and some of these people undergo various forms of surgery and hormone treatment to uh to change sex so in that in these for these transsexual individuals, their biological sex does not coincide with their gender identity. That's certainly a relatively rare phenomenon, but nonetheless, it's important to make this distinction between sex and gender because it helps us to understand the the different causal factors behind the differences between males and females, and which of them actually relate to sex versus those that relate to gender, and as I said, the main focus of this that the series of episodes will be about gender as opposed to sex, but certainly we will discuss some biological aspects as well. Okay, so that distinction being made, uh, we will now move on to a very brief overview of some of the uh, more obvious differences between males and females, uh, with a focus on Western societies, particularly the United States, where most of this research has been done, but we will to a small extent engage in a cross-cultural analysis as well. So, some of the more obvious differences between males and females, you can probably think of you could probably think of many of them yourself. So one important aspect is sex typing of work. So there are certain occupations which are considered things that men do, and there are certain occupations that are things that women do. So teaching and nursing are two very common examples of uh, feminine-typed occupations. Masculine-typed occupations would be most type, uh, many types of physical work. So, for example, firefighters or laborers. Also, uh, politics is traditionally considered quite a masculine field. And still today, in almost all countries, there is a substantial uh, there is su- substantial representation of females in, in Parliament, and partic- also in top executive roles. Military is also another area that's very uh, masculine, traditionally. Until very recently, education, uh, particularly higher education, high school, university especially, was considered to be something that was only appropriate for males. Uh, that's changed... Uh, only in about the last 100 years in the West, but uh, certainly historically that's been the case. Another important thing to be aware of is the pay gap, which you've probably heard before, that males earn more than females. There's an enormous literature on this, which we won't really address too much in this series, but just a few points to make about it regarding the size of the pay gap. Well, first of all, the pay gap doesn't just exist in America. It exists in pretty much all countries, uh, certainly all um, OECD countries, basically developed countries, and the size does vary quite substantially between different countries. So at the low end, some countries like Poland and New Zealand and Denmark, the gender gaps, uh, gender pay gaps, only around ten percent. But at the high end, say countries like Japan, it's uh, upwards of thirty percent. US, I believe it's around twenty twenty five ish. It does depend on how you measure it, of course. So uh, a sort of ra- a rough figure of 20 ish percent is a good ballpark if you're thinking sort of on average across developed countries. This is not accounted for by, for the most part, by differences in education, so the gender pay gap prevails across different levels of education. There's a fairly large amount of controversy concerning whether, concerning the degree to which the pay gap is generated by differences in skills and experience and other factors like that versus our, our discrimination. I think almost everyone agrees that at least some of the gender pay gap is accounted for by non-discriminatory components, so that would be differences in hours worked and differences in, as I said, experience and other things like that. Uh, the, The potential for pregnancy and maternity leave is also another factor which some have cited as being a reason why employers are less willing to promote women and less willing to pay high salaries and things like that because of the additional costs those would potentially impose. But anyway, uh, regardless, we won't say too much more about that specifically, but it's important to understand that the gender pay gap exists. It's quite large. It's existed for many decades. The size of it has diminished since the 50s and 60s, but it has not uh, certainly gone away. And some of the reasons for the the gender pay gap we will investigate uh, later on over these series of episodes. Some other important uh, components. Obviously, there are differences in appearance between men and women, now, some of these are related to sex, so, um, you know, women have uh, uterus and different reproductive organs, different sexual uh, secondary sexual characteristics, so that's facial hair on men, and a higher ratio of um, muscles in males, things like that. But, uh, males, on average, slightly taller than females, slightly larger factors like this but also in so so those are sex factors but there are also many gender factors that affect the differences between males and females so for, for instance in western societies women are far more likely to have long hair than males there is nothing at all biological about that that's a cultural phenomenon women tend to wear dresses or skirts or other clothing like that men do not men wear suits women can wear suits but you know much less likely to so there are obviously uh, many important differences there those are all Of course, completely social and cultural. There's obviously no biological component to those, so they're not directly anyway. There are personality differences. Men and women are definitely perceived to be uh, different. Women are generally perceived to be more caring, more nurturing, uh, less confrontational. Men are perceived to be more agentive, more aggressive, uh, more active. And whether these stereotypes are borne out by the evidence is something we'll examine uh, in due course. But uh, I'm just sort of setting the stage for the types of differences we're, trying, we're, we're we will attempt to explain. There are differences in conversation as well. So the types of things that men and women talk about, or and also interests. So obviously, you know, boys are supposed to be interested. Well, are perceived to be, or are generally thought to be more interested in sports. And things like cars and other uh, objects sort of toys like that, whereas uh, girls are suppo- supposedly more interested in dolls and sort of nurturing related uh, play activities, things like that, and also more interested in makeup and personal appearance uh, as opposed to boys who are not so so interested there's also substantial differences in regard to the legal system, so for example, the overwhelming majority of violent crime is committed by males, and the overwhelming majority of rape victims or sexual harassment victims in general, are uh, female. So there are considerable differences there as well, and we'll talk about those uh, a little bit as well in, in due course. So that that's that concludes the broad outline of the type of differences that we're going to address. There are obviously many more aspects that I haven't discussed, and many of these things also differ between different cultures, so this episode would definitely have a Western, particularly American, focus in large part, because that's where most of the research that has been done. But many of the basic principles uh, apply Cross-culturally, as best as we can determine. Uh, another important fact to note is that basically all the societies that we know about, uh, with maybe a few very minor exceptions, have been what we call patriarchal societies. That, that is, societies dominated by males, where males occupy the dominant political and economic positions of power, and women are uh, placed in, held in a subordinate position. Now, I- exactly the nature of that position differs a fair bit between societies. And I'm not just talking about societies that exist now, I'm also talking historically. So, for example, freedoms and position that women have in Western society today is, I think most would agree, much greater than it was 100 or 200 years ago. But still, many would argue that society, the society is patriarchal in the sense that most of the of persons of power in politics and in business, and in, indeed still in academia and other Offices of high status and respect, are, are males. And there still exist many norms, uh, social norms and practices, which serve to not necessarily exclude completely, but certainly uh, direct women away from those places of power and status. And we'll address many of those in this series of episodes. So that's what we mean by a patriarchal society, sort of male-dominated. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's dominated by all males versus all females. It's, uh, that's too simplistic. But uh, most, pr- virtually all societies that are known are patriarchal in one form or other. So that's important to remember that that there is certainly a large degree of, of cross-cultural uh, similarity uh, in the types of things we're, we're attempting to explain here. Okay, so having set the basis for what we're going to look at, uh, the, the first topic that we're going to discuss uh, is socialization behaviors. Uh, just to, to to set the stage a bit, once we finish with socialization, I'll move on to talk about discrimination and bias more specifically, and then we'll move on to addressing some of the more biological aspects of gender differences, including a look at hormones and their influence on behaviour and uh, interests and such, and other biological differences, for example, brain differences, differences in brain structure and function. And uh, uh, following that, we will address a number of more specific topics that I think are of interest, including occupational segregation, uh, the presence or absence of women in math and STEM fields, which is a particularly controversial issue, the differences between male and female expression and experience of emotions, and also differences in conversation uh, between males and females. So, we'll start off by looking at social influences, then the biological influences, and then we'll apply some of these uh, broader insights to looking at those specific specific topics that I outlined. So, starting with socialisation. Socialisation is, in my view, one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, broad category of influences that determine uh, gender behaviours and gender identity. So, what do we mean by socialisation? Socialisation is the process by which uh, social customs and norms and cultural practices, etc., are transmitted from one generation to the next, essentially, within a particular society. Another way of describing it is it's the means by which social and cultural continuity are uh, maintained. Socialization has many different components. but So, for example, teaching children learning a language that that parents speak and that their society speaks, that's part of socialization. Uh, Learning table manners is part of socialization. Learning which side of the road to drive on or what side of the path to walk down is part of socialization. Learning to read and write is, in some sense, part of socialization. So there's many, many components of socialization. What we're going to focus on is particularly differential socialization, which refers to the... Process by which males and females are assigned different gender roles and are socialized differentially, so that girls are socialized to behave like girls, and ultimately women are supposed to behave, and men uh, and boys are socialized it's consistent with how boys and ultimately men are supposed to behave. So there's a difference in how uh, boys and girls, and then later men and women, are socialized. If there wasn't such a difference, then it would just be socialization. There would still be socialization but there wouldn't be this difference in socialisation between the two genders. So the, the argument here, which will, be, will, I think, be illustrated by a, a vast body of evidence, which I'll uh, illustrate some of, the basic argument is that differential socialisation of boys versus girls and then males versus females co- uh, contributes a major component, uh, perhaps the major component, to the observed gender differences between uh, males and females. There are many different agents of socialization. Agents of socialization are mechanisms or methods by which these social customs and norms are passed down. So family is a huge one, especially parents, probably well, among the most important. Probably the second most important would be peer groups, and obviously, the relative importance would differ between different people and different different customs. But family and peer groups are very important in all cultures. Schools are a very important one as well. And increasingly, the media and sort of the popular public opinion are also very important agents of socialization. And we'll talk a bit about the media later on. The media particularly gets a large amount of criticism for their for their role in perpetuating gender, uh, differential gender socialization and gender roles. Although, my my personal view is that's somewhat exaggerated because I think in a large part, the media just reflects the social the differential socialization and gender norms that are manifested uh, and and perpetuated in the family and in peer groups as well but we'll we'll get to that a bit more later on okay so let's look at some of the specific evidence of how differential socialization that is uh, assigning gender roles to males and females and so that boys grow up as boys and girls grow up behaving as girls how does that actually happen so there is evidence that differential socialization begins basically right from birth so They've done studies where mothers, and I think also fathers, but particularly mothers are asked to estimate the motor abilities of their infants, and even though there isn't any measurable objective difference between boys and girls, or at least in this study, I don't know if there is in general, but uh, regardless, particularly they looked at uh, how well that they would crawl down a slope. Mo- uh, mothers tended to say that, uh, to estimate that boys would uh, be better at that than girls, even though there was no objective difference. So already, just a very short time after birth, there is a perception that Boys and girls the male babies versus female babies are different in another study there were a bunch of uh, pairs of parents who were interviewed within twenty four hours of birth and the study was was carefully controlled so that there were no objective differences between babies in terms of weight or length or any other physical characteristics that might be relevant and they examined how the parents described their babies and Uh, observed any differences between whether the baby was male or female. Fathers, in particular, seemed to describe their children quite differently. Fathers uh, tended to describe their daughters as inattentive and delicate and weak, whereas they rated their sons as stronger, better coordinated and more alert. Both mothers and fathers tended to describe girls as... uh, uh, using words like little, beautiful, pretty and cute, whereas uh, parents of boys, again mothers and fathers, tended to use words... To describe their infants as big and strong and things like that. Again, so this is not uh, this is not exclusive, but tendency to use different words and to rate differentially uh, inc- rate characteristics differentially according to whether the baby was male or female, even in the absence of any actual objective differences. And this, uh, I remind you, occurred tw- within 24 hours of the infant's birth. So already, pretty much at the moment of birth, there are di- parents conceive of their uh, children, think of their children differently depending on whether they're male or female. So that's the parents. What about the children? When do children begin to internalize these gender norms? So the evidence suggests that gender identity emerges somewhere between 18 and 24 months. So one and a half to two years. Obviously, there's a lot of variability there, but it's, it's sometime around that range. So, uh, even before they're able, uh, even before the infants are able to speak, we think gender identity emerges. There's various ways we can test that, such as gender-typed visual preferences. So you give two objects and see which one the baby tends to look at longer or look at more one gender-consistent, one gender-inconsistent, and things like that. By the age of around 30 months, most children can accurately label their sex and place a picture of themselves amongst others of same-sex children. Two and a half years' gender, role, gender identity is generally quite well-established, but d- can develop a lot, uh, fair bit earlier than that, as early as 18 months. So gender identity is uh, very quickly learned by children, uh, in comparison to most other things, and quite robust as well. There's evidence that over the course of a child's development, conceptions of gender identity become somewhat softened over time. So uh, there's some studies I read about how uh, very young children, like three or four or five or something like that, will tend to object quite strongly to, you know, a boy playing with girls' toys or something like that. They'll say it's wrong or use strong strong language, whereas older children will say it's okay but it's unusual or something like that. So there tend to be some softening of these gender perceptions as the children age, but certainly they don't go away and conceptions of the differences between males and females are retained throughout childhood and adolescence and indeed throughout life. Some other evidence as to the different ways in which girls and boys conceive of of themselves and conceive of the difference between their genders. Boys boys and girls alike, so this applies to both boys and girls, when they're asked to describe girls, the types of words that they spontaneously use are related to appearance. They'll talk about things like dresses, jewellery, hair, makeup, perfume, very appearance-focused. That's boys and girls when spontaneously asked to describe girls. Conversely, when boys and girls are asked to describe males, they tend to focus on activity and behaviour related terms. So this includes uh, descriptions relating to hitting and wrestling, rough play, action, fantasy, that sort of thing. So girls are defined primarily in terms of what they look like, boys are defined primarily in terms of what they do, and particularly with a focus on sort of action, uh, active, physically active uh, types of activities and this is also consistent with the way that parents talk to children in particular there's good evidence that fathers tend to talk more about physical activities and that sort of thing with their and sports and, and such with their sons and talk about appearance uh, and other things like that with their, with their daughters another interesting study relating to parents behavior uh, looked at the difference between mothers and fathers uh, interactions with their children and they found that there was relatively little difference in caregiving per se, so that's like feeding and changing diapers and things like that, was relatively, was relatively similar. But in terms of play, there were substantial differences. So mothers and fathers were observed to differ in the number of commands, or polite commands, or leads, or imperatives, and other types of things that they, they offered children during play. So it, it it seems from this sort of evidence that the behaviour that the parents model when interacting with their children also contributes to differential gender socialisation in that the children see that women behave in this way, the mother behaves in this way, uh, men, the father, behave in a different way. And so children, uh, so the argument goes, model that. It's hard to know exactly the way in which the socialisation process occurs, but certainly the fact that uh, mothers and fathers interact differently with children is consistent with this sort of role model uh, idea in socialisation. Now, as I mentioned before, the media is also a powerful agent of socialization, and there have been a lot of interesting studies on the way that media, including television and books, portray boys and girls. So, one thing, the media very seldom shows boys with feminine traits. It's become more common to show, uh, to have females with male traits, so, you know, uh, action heroes who are females and that sort of thing has become more common in recent decades, but still, uh, effeminate males are relatively rare. In television shows and movies, there's still a predominance of male lead characters, and also there is still significant gender stereotypes of the roles that different characters play. So, male characters are more likely to be shown as aggressive and constructive, and more likely to be rewarded for behavior, for, for this behaviour, whereas female characters are often portrayed as passive and deferent, and punished if they deviate from, from these norms, so if they act too aggressive or, or actively. Uh, another interesting study of children's books. There were nearly twice as many male as female main characters. And uh, an, an interesting study of commercials, uh, that is commercials are directed towards children, showed that there was a much greater tendency for men and boys to be portrayed in a major role, uh, as opposed to girls and women. And, you know, uh, boys portrayed as more active and in an occupational setting. Whereas uh, girls tend to be portrayed in a more passive or domestic setting. This is uh, consistent with uh, establishing and normalizing uh, particular modes of behavior for for males versus females, and therefore perpetuating uh, these these stereotypes and and social norms. Now, one very prominent difference between males and females, uh, well, particularly, sorry, boys and girls, uh, is uh, gender typing in toys that children play with. So, as I mentioned before, boys play with trucks and construction vehicles and other things like that. Girls play with dolls. Obviously, there's a large component of this which is culturally uh, determined. For example, one example given in a study that I was reading was that almost all parents would be upset if their uh, boy was given Barbie dolls as a present. So how early does this uh, gender difference in toy preference uh, become manifest? So there have been a lot of different studies on this to see how uh, when children begin to express preference for um, gender-typed toys... And it seems that boys and girls will select different toys as early as about twelve months. So this is even before the uh, one and a half to two-year period that we mentioned before as being the time when children sort of begin to establish their own gender identity. So this is about one year of age that children begin expressing preference for a male versus female toys according to their own gender. And uh, there's evidence that these the stereotypical knowledge is uh, very robust and maintained over time, so in one interesting experiment, children were faster in assigning toys to stereotype-congruent categories versus stereotype-incongruent uh, categories. So if they had to give a truck to a girl, it sort of took them longer to process that than giving a truck to a, a boy, for instance. So this is consistent with the idea that this gender stereotype knowledge is sort of deeply ingrained. The study uh, the study that I found that looked at preference differences in the youngest children found that there were no differences in toy preference at the age of three months, but there were, uh, differences at the age of twelve months, even perhaps as early as ten months, so even maybe a little bit under a year, but not at the, not at the age of three months. So, it's not from birth that children exhibit this difference in toy preferences, but not too long after birth, around a year of age, that they begin expressing these preferences. So, obviously, there's a significant cultural component to uh, to toy selection. There's obviously not a gene that predisposes girls to be more interested in Barbies. However, that said, there is some very interesting evidence about the role of hormones in affecting interests uh, and personality characteristics, in particular um, toy preference, but I'll discuss this in more detail when we get to the hormones section. So, we'll defer that for now. One final point is that it seems that schools do contribute a at least significant component to this differential gender socialization. So in one interesting study, uh, there were three groups, or th- three types of classrooms that were, div- in which the children were divided up into groups using three different methods. One was to use male and female groups. Another one was to use red and green groups and with mixtures of male and females. And another group, uh, sorry, the third condition was to just not use any explicit groups at all in whatever activities they were doing. And this was, uh, these groups were maintained for four weeks, and then the children completed, uh, various test measures of gender and intergroup attitudes. And as was consistent with the prediction that they, the authors of this study made, the use of gender groups in, in the class increased levels of gender stereotyping, whereas the use of color groups did not. So, so what do we learn from this study? It seems to indicate that to the extent the, 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 that functional grouping, in other words separations of male and females into different groups or different categories or different activities, increases the uh, levels to which there is a perceived difference uh, between males and females and and accentuates those stereotypes. Of course, this was an artificial environment, but we can see in the real world how uh, boys and girls are separated in various explicit and implicit ways all the time, and so this sort of behavior will, uh, it seems, serve to increase levels of uh, gender stereotyping and, and perceived difference. Okay, so that's all we have to say about socialisation behaviours explicitly. Of course, there'll be uh, more of this scattered throughout the the other topics we have to talk about. But now I'll move on to discussing uh, discrimination and bias, with a particular focus on employment. And this sort of research, I think, helps to shed a lot of light on the uh, reasons for a prevailing wage gap and also for occupational segregation, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail later on. The first thing to note, I think, about... uh, overt discrimination is that although there are undoubtedly people who have a dislike for those of the other gender, males who dislike females, females who dislike males, this sort of, these sorts of attitudes are, as far as we can tell, relatively rare. In other words, overt misogynism is not especially common in terms of people, at least, declaring, uh, declaring that they hate females or something like that. Indeed, when you uh, do studies about getting people to rate the qualities of males and females there's actually a tendency for females to be ranked uh, to be rated as more likable than males generally this seems to be a product of the fact that the traditionally uh, feminine qualities like being uh, kind and uh, nurturing and things like that uh, and um, cooperative communal are generally perceived to be more positive in an overall evaluative sense uh, as compared to the tra- uh, traditionally masculine characteristics, so uh, including aggression and dominance and other things like that. So in terms of likability, women as a group tend to outsc- uh, outscore males as a group. However, when this is applied to the workplace, we see some very different results, because men also tend to be perceived as being more competent than females, and this is a very uh, a very robust finding. Uh, in particular, uh, one one study stated it As uh, people believe that women more than men manifest the communal qualities that they think typify homemakers, and that men more than women manifest the agentic qualities that they think typify employees, and I would add to that in particular that typify management and people in positions of power. And a fair bit of research has demonstrated these sorts of attitudes are not exclusively held by men; they are held by men and women as well. So, so these types of uh, these types of discrimination and these types of uh, bias and perceptions of of correct gender roles again tend to be held by both males and females at relatively equal levels, as far as we can determine. So, the basic finding from this type of research seems to be something of the fo- something like the following. It seems to be that something like the following scenario exists in in many workplaces, and indeed in the uh, employment sphere as a whole, that a competent manager is identified with as having certain characteristics which are perceived to be masculine, so this is things like uh, power, and uh, being aggressive, and uh, competency, and being active, assertive, all, all of these sorts of what are called agentic qualities, being an active agent. So that is the perception of what a good manager, a good leader, looks like. Women are perceived not to have these characteristics, or at least are perceived not to have them uh, to the degree that males do. And therefore, there's a tendency to see females as less qualified, less competent, less able to fulfill these uh, sorts of particularly higher leadership roles, regardless of their actual qualifications or actual abilities and this this sort of bias is manifested in a lot of interesting ways so there've been studies where the identical piece of work is presented and described as being done by a man or a woman and it's rated better when it's done by a when it's said to have been done by a man than when it's said to have been done by a woman because men are perceived to be more competent there are also very interesting studies where a bunch of resumes are sent out and the only thing that's different is the uh, whether the name on the, attached to the resume and and picture is male or female, and that the content of the resume, in terms of experience and qualifications is identical, and more of the male job applicants receive follow-ups and receive interviews than the female applicants. Again, I think this is fairly clear evidence that there is a bias in the employment and promotion and uh, interviewing uh, components of, uh, of the workforce in favour of males as a result of them being, uh, as males, perceived to be more competent and possessing the type of skills that are tend to be more valued by employers, particularly, again, in leadership and executive levels. Now, this does not hold, all of the things I've been saying do not hold for occupations which are typically viewed as being female occupations. So, in those particular instances, so uh, these sort of occupations include teachers and caring roles, nursing, that sort of thing, Men are not considered to be superior uh, to women in those types of roles. And so, again, that goes some way to explaining the occupational segregation that, that uh, we'll discuss a bit more later on. Now, this uh, tendency to rate female, uh, to, to rate work by women as inferior uh, to, to work by men is mo- most pronounced when there's a degree of, uh, when there's a, a substantial degree of ambiguity in terms of measuring the quality Of the work, so if it's something that can be very easily quantified and measured in an objective way, then these biases tend to be smaller. But increasingly, uh, and uh, increasingly in sort of modern workplaces and also at higher levels of, uh, of management and such things, the degree to which an individual's contribution can be measured for uh, for uh, for competency and quality etc is uh, quite small because people tend to work in groups and it tends to be very difficult to measure exactly the performance of the group and certainly individuals within the group and so there's a fair bit of uh, wiggle room you might say for uh, subjective biases to have an influence in the in the decision, in terms of measuring competence and, and degree of effort, and it, studies have in, these, these studies have indicated that uh, the larger this degree of ambiguity is, the the more pronounced uh, tend to be the the bias against women uh, against women's work. Ambiguous behaviours that uh, women exhibit are tend to be interpreted in a negative light, whereas when exhibited by males, they tend to be exhibited in a positive light. Similarly, successful work by a a woman is more likely to be interpreted as being the result of their situation or luck or some other external characteristic, whereas uh, successful work by a male is more likely to be interpreted as resulting from their own competence or hard work. Now, I've just been talking about how uh, women tend to be rated as inferior and tend to be considered to be to possess, in a smaller degree, those types of characteristics which are thought to be requisite for effective leaders and managers. However, there's a flip side to this which makes the situation... Uh, particularly difficult, because it's been found in a number of studies that when women do exhibit these types of masculine characteristics, uh, of being more assertive and agentic, that this results in them being perceived in a negative way. They are perceived to be bitter, quarrelsome, selfish, deceitful, angry, devious, etc., whereas males behaving in essentially the same way are not perceived in that way. And the, the theory is that when males exhibit these types of characteristics, which, or behaviors which could potentially be seen as being, uh, quarrelsome or selfish or aggressive, that is perceived to be more normal because after all, people expect men to behave, uh, more in that way. Whereas when a female exhibits the behaviors to exactly the same degree, that is interpreted to be more as a result of her extreme personality because it's less congruent with her gender identity and less congruent with her perceived gender role. Therefore, a male and a female getting equally angry the male will just be perceived to be acting like all males do whereas the female will be perceived to be uniquely an angry person and these types of uh, these types of reactions uh, result in females who behave in this way tending to be disliked they tend to be uh, found to be less socially appealing particularly by the men who are in uh, the positions of power who may be uh, deciding whether they are promoted or whether the women receive promotions or not. So this this is a general principle when people step outside gender uh, norms and behave in ways that are incongruent with their uh, socially established gender identity people tend to dislike them people don't like that it makes them feel uncomfortable but also it causes them to attribute those sort of deviances to the person's personality which makes them a, a bad person or a problematic person or a deviant person a troublemaker and so people tend not to like them as much now you might think that this shouldn't be particularly relevant sure uh, Women who behave in these sort of agentic ways might be disliked, but shouldn't it be the case that the people who are, have the highest skills are promoted and so it doesn't really matter? And indeed, if women are not being promoted, then is this not a sign that there is sort of overt discrimination against women because the managers just don't like women or something like that? I, I don't think the evidence is most consistent with that. I think that it's more consistent with, with, with a somewhat more subtle phenomenon, which is that, again, in many of these cir- circumstances, Assessing competence and performance and qualifications is difficult. It's ambiguous. And so what tends to happen is that a, a substantial component of, of of subjective bias and of basically personal evaluation creeps in to determining their competence. So in other words, the person conducting the interview or determining the promotion or whatever, their attitude towards uh, the, the person they're evaluating seeps over and clouds the judgment that they make. So these types of agentic women whom they dislike because their behavior is inconsistent with gender stereotype receive lower evaluations. Not just because they are women, or maybe it's not because they're women per se, because their work is uh, still very high quality, but it's because they are, they are not liked as much, their social evaluation is lower, therefore this creeps over into the evaluation of their work. And this is largely, I think, a subconscious thing. People don't, people think they're being fair and objective, but as I've discussed in previous episodes, people are very bad at introspecting about their reasons for doing things and for making particular evaluations, and biases creep in in all sorts of ways. So a, it seems to be that the evidence points to the fact that negative social relations uh, with these sort of, what I'm going to call, agentic women lead to uh, more negative evaluations of their work, and they perceive perceived to be less confident and more troublesome, and therefore both of these factors contribute to them not getting promotions and uh, not being rewarded as much as their male counterparts for successful work. And I want to emphasise, although the evidence for this particular claim is uh, not as strong as the other things I've been saying, it seems that these types of biases uh, are present for both men and women. So, in other words, men and women managers uh, w- will tend to act in this way. I think that there is evidence that women managers... Uh, less biased against women in this way, but I, I do believe there is evidence that they still do exhibit these biases to some extent, or, uh, but the, yeah, the, the evidence is a little bit mixed on that, to the extent to which this is exhibited by males and females, but I think in general it's definitely the case that these gender roles are very deeply ingrained in, uh, in society, and it's not just it's not the case that it's only men or only women who are participating in the in socialisation process and uh, who exhibit these sorts of biases. It's, it's most certainly both. So just, just to recap the, the basic idea there. The basic idea of why women are not receiving as many promotions, why they're not paid as much, and why they're not perceived to be as competent is that if women behave in a way that's consistent with their perceived uh, gender role, so that they behave in a more submissive way, less aggressive, less agentic, then they are not perceived to exhibit the characteristics of a good manager or of a competent employee, and therefore they tend not to receive the same promotions or the same prestige. They're not perceived as competent as their male counterparts. Conversely, if they do exhibit these types of agentic, uh, more more aggressive uh, characteristics and behaviours, then they are perceived to be more competent, but they are disliked, particularly by their male counterparts, although... Again, not necessarily exclusively by males, by males and females alike. And this, uh, the fact that they're disliked seeps into uh, biases about the judgment of how ca- capable they are and also just how, uh, w- whether they will be good members to the team or whether they are uh, quarrelsome and difficult to work with and therefore as they're perceived to be more quarrelsome and uh, less competent, they are still not recommended for the promotion or not uh, or for the raise or anything. This has been this situation has been characterised as a sort of a catch-22 situation. If uh, if the female tries to break out of the gender roles, they are they they are perceived as being difficult to work with and therefore denied the promotion. If they try if they try to avoid that and remain within the traditional gender roles, then they are not perceived to exhibit the qualities necessary for a competent leader or executive, and therefore they are denied the promotion. So, in either situation, women are unable to um, break through what's called the glass ceiling. This is the idea that there's some sort of limit to how far a woman can rise in an organisation. Obviously, what I've been talking about are broad generalisations, and certainly don't describe in any systematic way how women and men behave exclusively with each other obviously there are examples of women who have risen to the top of their organizations and obviously there are plenty of examples of women you know who are perceived to be competent and um, agentic etc cetera, etc cetera. the point is it, there is good evidence that these types of biases and uh social norms operate in 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 general on average in many in many social settings, particularly employment settings. And so, although they're not universal, you know, everyone doesn't think this, everyone doesn't behave in this way, and the degree to which people behave in this way varies according to the situation, but nonetheless these types of, uh, f- these types of processes do seem to be very important. Before we finish off this Part 1 of the Sex and Gender series, we will look at how discrimination and bias affect women in two other important spheres, voting, that is politics, and in healthcare. First of all, let's talk a little bit about voting. So, there have been quite a few studies on how the gender of candidates affects their performance. At least in the US, there doesn't seem to be any difference in the rate of success in terms of uh, achieving the, the, the desired office of female versus male candidates, either in the Democratic or Republican parties. In the case of presidential candidates, it's a, mu- it's a lot more difficult because, obviously, there have not been any female presidents as yet, and very few, well, uh, as far as I know, no female candidates even have been nominated by either of the major parties. There have, of course, been... Uh, re- recently, we, for example, had Hillary Clinton running for the Democratic nomination. She was unsuccessful. and I think there may have been some other women who have attempted to... Acquire the Democratic nomination, but we don't really have very much data to work with in regards to the presidential election. So in terms of actual success rates, it seems to be fairly consistent between both the candidates. If we, uh, between male and female candidates. If we look at more micro data, or we look at actual experimental results and surveys, we, we uh, come across some rather interesting results. First of all, voters perceive male candidates to be better at handling crime and foreign affairs, and female candidates as being better at helping the poor and protecting women's rights. So, the male and female voters both perceive candidates in a uh, in a gendered manner, in a uh, as possessing qualities consistent with their gender role, and that's not especially surprising. There is also an overall tendency for American women to vote uh, for Democrats much more than Republicans, and conversely for males to vote Republican disproportionately. Now, if we look at surveys that have explicitly asked candidates about a gender preference, usually the question is something like, if two equally qualified candidates were running for office, one man and one woman, which would you be more likely to vote for? Uh, We we see some interesting results. The studies that I found showed that roughly half of men and about 60% of women expressed a preference one way or the other. That is, half of men didn't care whether it was male or female, at least this was their stated opinion, and about 60, uh, about 40% of women expressed no preference for male or female. Of those who did express a preference, most women preferred the female candidate, about 62%, and most men, 68%, preferred the male candidate. So, in other words, we can summarize that by saying that overall, slightly more women had a preference one way or the other, but there was a minority of women who preferred male over female, whereas that the number of male candidates who preferred female over male was very small. And so, although fewer men expressed a preference one way or the other, more of those who did express a preference preferred male over female. So overall, if you incorporate both the proportion of subjects who expressed a preference and the proportion that voted for their own gender, overall there does seem to be a bias for females to vote for female candidates and males to vote for male candidates. But it's relatively small. It's not an enormous effect. And it seems that those two effects are roughly equal in size, and given that males and females both constitute roughly 50% of the population, it's therefore unsurprising that we find roughly equal success rates for male and female candidates in the US. Although there are bias effects on for both males and female voters, males slightly more likely to vote male, females slightly more likely to vote female, overall of course, these two biases roughly cancel each other out, and so overall there's no particular differential success in uh, of male versus female candidates. Now that's uh, that's notwithstanding the previous effect that I noted about both males and females perceiving male candidates as being better at certain things, crime and foreign affairs, and female candidates as being better at other things. And uh, one, one can also imagine, although I don't know if there's been explicit study of this, that similar effects of the similar glass ceiling effects of gender incongruent behaviors of of uh, agentic women and and such things uh, also operate in the political arena, as we found that they did in the in the corporate arena. So in other words, similar. Similar social mechanisms that prevent women from rising or make it more difficult for women to rise to high positions in, uh, in the business world also uh, mean that it's more difficult for them to rise to high positions in the political world and to receive nominations uh, of major parties and such. So that may partly explain the relative lack of women in uh, political positions. It doesn't seem to be the case that there's an overall tendency for, of people to vote for uh, men over women, but certainly there are many more men in uh, positions of political power and particularly in upper positions of political power and senior positions of political power, than there are women. Okay, moving on to healthcare. There's very interesting evidence about a differential treatment of men versus women by healthcare practitioners. First of all, the rate of underutilization of services and delaying of seeking of medical attention and so on of males seems to be much greater. Than that of females, and this probably doesn't surprise many people. Uh, it, it's probable that this relates to male stereotypes as needing to be strong and independent and self-reliant. These type of agentic qualities that we discussed previously. Th- these types of uh, behaviours and attitudes mitigate against seeking early treatment or complaining too much about conditions, but it does lead to um, to, to later diagnosis and poorer treatment and poorer health outcomes for men in many uh, for many conditions. So that that's a particular problem, basically about getting men to go to the doctor and to get things checked up, which uh, seems to be at least in part, probably largely caused by uh, differential sex, uh, differential gender socialisation. There's another component of healthcare which is a uh, which is interesting and particularly disturbing. In many Asian countries, particularly China and India, but others as well, there is a fairly strong preference for many families to have male children as opposed to female children for uh, for various cultural and social reasons. There's uh, this, A study that I looked at in India actually found that mothers were more likely to visit antenatal clinics and receive uh, tetanus vaccinations and also to uh, essentially invest in uh, prenatal care uh, more, more substantially, when they knew they had male children versus when they knew they had uh, that is, when they were pregnant with a male baby versus when they were pregnant with a female baby. And indeed, uh, according to the authors, the sex-selective prenatal care, uh, just in, in in the use of tetanus uh, vaccinations or treatments alone, explained about 4-10% to 10% of the excess female uh, neonat- neonatal mortality in India, that is, the excess rate at which female uh, babies die over male babies, because essentially parents are making, or particularly the mothers, are making more effort and investing more resources into, into the male child. Selective infanticide of female infants in India and China is certainly not unknown, and that's a much more direct expression of uh, parent sexual uh, preference, or also selective abortions, uh, relatively common as well. But uh, th- this particular study I found quite interesting, because it, it exhibits a much more subtle example of how uh, social pressures and uh, stereotypes about gender and which gender is uh, preferable to have as as a child and so on, which is going to be more useful to provide for you in old age or for whatever exact reasons are. There's, there's all sorts of reasons why this preference exists. But anyway, how these factors then uh, influence these uh, decisions, even these small decisions about the extent to which one seeks medical care or the extent to which, which uh, mothers invest in uh, prenatal uh, m- medical care and visit clinics and, and such and and this in turn leads on to differential uh, neonatal uh, mortality rates a very interesting and quite disturbing study, actually that that's more relevant to the developing world rather than the western world but i think it does highlight that these sorts of gender uh, these effects of gender socialization and stereotyping and gender identity have effects uh, very strong effects cross culturally although the precise nature of the effects uh, certainly will differ between different countries now there's another uh, another interesting body of literature again mostly in western countries that that i discovered which is essentially that doctors and and nurses but, but particularly male doctors but it seems to apply to female nurses uh, as well and of course uh, that i'm sort of making statements consistent with the gender stereotypes here that males are doctors and women are females but in terms of the sheer numbers that is uh, by far the case less than it used to be but but still that uh, there is a fairly large amount of oc- occupational segregation there but anyway It seems to be the case that uh, medical practitioners uh, consider the women's complaints about pain in particular, but also other symptoms, particularly pain, uh, much less seriously than those of males. So there's all sorts of results about men receiving more painkillers than women, or receiving uh, painkiller treatments earlier, or for longer, or higher doses. And this seems to be related to an attitude that uh, many healthcare practitioners express, that women are less sensitive to pain and more tolerant of pain But also more likely to report pain and express pain than males are. So there's this sort of interesting, this interesting dichotomy there. It's perceived that females are both less affected by pain, but also more likely to report pain. And so I, the idea is that then if a male reports pain or expresses uh, discomfort, then the uh, conception there is that it's more likely that the pain is debilitating or is is really bad uh, for for the male than the female because women both have a higher pain threshold and also a lower reporting threshold, if you like. So uh, I guess the the implicit notion here is that a report of pain by a male should be taken more seriously than a report of pain by a female. Whether this is true or not is another matter. It's probably... Well, there does seem to be some evidence that men and women do experience pain in somewhat different ways. It's very difficult to know exactly what the nature of this is. I mean, one can't rely on self-reports because you don't necessarily know if their reporting is different or if the actual experience is different. Different parts of the brain light up a little bit differently, and there do seem to be some differences in hormones and other things between men and women when they're experiencing pain. But again, it's very difficult to know whether that results in a different subjective experience or not. So essentially, we can't measure pain in any real objective way. So there's no real way of knowing if women are more sensitive to pain or have a higher tolerance or whatever than men. It it might be, there might be some truth to that, but I th- the, the evidence is really just not uh, not sufficient to make that. Uh, claim with confidence, but regardless, it certainly seems to be the perception uh, among medical practitioners and indeed the general public that that is the case, and therefore uh, leading to this phenomenon of men receiving uh, more, more considered and uh, m- more extensive uh, treatment for pain than than women, and this uh, c- can be uh, this has been shown to lead to uh, more complications for women and uh, inferior outcomes in, in various conditions. So it is a sort of an interesting juxtaposition there. Well, on the one hand, men have poorer outcomes because they tend to report much later and go to the, and seek medical help uh, much less frequently, but conversely they tend to have better outcomes insofar as their reports, particularly of pain, are treated more seriously by medical practitioners. So in both cases, the differential, differential gender perceptions gender roles and identities are having a very tangible effect on on social outcomes in terms of the way that medical practitioners interact with patients okay so that's all for this part one of sex and gender but join me next time for part two when i'll discuss the some biological differences between males and females and talk about hormones and then we'll look at occupational segregation emotions and and some other issues of interest thanks for listening and i'll talk to you next time